This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 13th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Suzanne Bard interviews Lauren Salin about the winners and losers after one of Earth's largest mass extinction events. And David Grimm is here with stories on grandma's immunological inheritance, gambling on studies, and essential genes. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on immunity from grandmothers. When babies are born, they have a pretty naive immune system. But they do get a little bump from their moms. Immune molecules from mothers, including antibodies, do cross the placenta and offer a small amount of protection. But now it looks like grandmothers might also contribute to this protection. How could this happen? We don't know that grandmothers can pass along this protection, but there is this idea that these early maternal immune compounds that you mentioned might have educational effects. They might might somehow have this sort of generalized priming effect on the immune system. And if so, that might be something that could actually transfer from generation to generation if the mother passes along this priming ability to a daughter and that daughter still has it, she might be able to in turn pass it on to her daughter, her mother's granddaughter. And now the study takes an unexpected turn, (laughs) and the researchers decided to look at this problem in pigeons. Why use pigeons? (laughs) It's a good question. The researchers say they chose pigeons because they have pretty short generation time, so it doesn't take that long between pigeons getting together, having offspring, and eventually those offspring having offspring. So take us through the setup using these generations of pigeons. They took 120 urban pigeons and they divided them into two groups. One group were injected with a protein called hemocyanin, and this is a protein that transports oxygen in some invertebrates. But as far as the birds are concerned, it's a foreign protein and they're going to generate an immune response, i.e. antibodies against it. The other 60 birds just got a saline solution. And then the researchers let the birds breed, looked at the offspring, and with all the offspring, all the offspring got injected with this protein. And with this third generation of birds, what the researchers looked at was were there birds whose grandmother had received that initial hemocyanin injection mounted more of an immune response against the protein 
than birds who were descended from grandmothers who had not received that injection, who had just gotten the saline. Did they see a difference between maternal, those with maternal injections, those without maternal injections? What, how did this play out? They did. They saw that the birds that were descended from grandmothers that had gotten this initial injection of hemocyanin mounted a stronger immune response as if their bodies were already primed to fight back against this foreign protein. Is there a proposed mechanism for this? What's the vehicle of inheritance? One idea is that maybe the grandmother passes along more antibodies or the ability to generate more antibodies to her daughter, who then passes that along to her daughter. But that's not really what the researchers saw. They saw that in the offspring of the mothers that were given the hemocyanin protein, that they actually didn't have any more antibodies than the offspring of mothers who were not given this protein. So antibodies may not be the key here. There may be some other molecule or pathway that's involved that the researchers just aren't clear about yet. Next up, we have a story on placing bets on science. A recent study in Science Magazine attempted to replicate 100 psychology studies. This was on the podcast, actually, and found that the results of many of them were not repeatable. That study only had about 39% replication success. But across all domains of science, the estimate is about 50%. Half the studies out there are flukes. How do we tell which ones? How about betting on it? (laughs) That's the idea behind this new study. If we can get scientists to bet on which studies are more likely to replicate, maybe we'll have a better sense of which studies are actually true. And the reason they chose betting is because you could ask people just to guess. Like, can you guess whether this study is going to turn out to be reproducible or not? But it turns out past work has shown that when people have a bit of skin in the game, that is, when they've actually got their own money on the line, they're probably more likely to put some thought into that guess. And in fact, that research has shown that when people do have skin in the game, that their predictions are more accurate. For example, uh, guessing how many jelly beans are in a jar or how heavy a cow is. Once you crowdsource the answers to those questions, especially for people that actually put real money down on the outcome, you start to see those predictions becoming a lot more accurate. The prediction market in this study was a little bit more complicated than everyone just guessing on the weight of a cow or the number of jelly beans. How did it work? The basic idea is that a bunch of scientists, in fact, about 50 scientists, were given $100 each to place bets on whether a handful of psychology studies would be reproducible. And they played the prediction market, which is kind of like a stock market. The prices of certain studies being reproducible or not reproducible can change depending on how many people are betting on them and how they're betting, and you can change your bets over time. At the end of the day, there had been more than 2,000 of these transactions. And as we know from this data set, these studies only reproduced about 39% of the time. Now, when people were just guessing at whether the studies were replicated, their guesses were pretty close to chance, about 58%. But when the team behind this new study crowdsourced all that information for the people that were gambling on these studies, the predictions were right about 71% of the time. Can prediction markets like this be used all over science? Is this a repeatable experiment? One of the experts uh, we talked to for the story says that this may not be broadly applicable. When you start to deal with studies that are a lot more complicated, disease genomics, for example, where you got just a lot of different things happening in the study, a lot of different genes, proteins, molecular biology, all that other stuff, that this will probably break down because it becomes a lot harder to try to make an informed guess on the outcome. Lastly, we have a story on killer genes. 
We have a lot of genes, about 20,000 in the human genome. But which of those are essential to life and which are more nice to have but probably wouldn't kill you to mess with them a little bit? In a new preprint study, that means it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet, a team of researchers asked this question by looking at a ton of genomes. How many are we talking here, Dave? We're talking about 60,000 genomes. And what they focused on was the exomes. And these are the parts of the genome that encode protein. So there's a lot of other parts of the genome that are responsible for structure or other things. But here they're looking at just the genes that encode the proteins that fill our bodies. And of those, how many are so special, so essential that losing them will kill us? Well, it's not even that. It's They could kill us if there's just even minute alteration of these genes. You really can't mess with them at all. And a lot of other genes, we need almost all the genes we have, but we can have variation in those genes. Like you and I can have a very different version of gene XYZ, say, but we're both fine because those variations aren't lethal. But with these 3,200 genes, or to be exact, these 3,230 genes, it appears that even small variations in the genes are enough to either kill people before they're born, so cause death in an embryo stage, or make a person just so sick that there's no way they will pass on those genes to a next generation. So effectively, they've been sort of removed from the evolutionary pool because they have an alteration of this gene. What do these genes do? I mean, yes, if we don't have the proper form of them, we will not make it. But what exactly are they doing in the body? Well, researchers are currently investigating the functions of a lot of these genes, but what they do know is about 20% of them are already associated with diseases, which is really important because now that we know which genes are super critical, that could really help scientists home in on the genes that are responsible for a lot of human diseases and potentially aid the search for therapies and drugs. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about where Earth's water came from. Also, why some birds choose love over food. <laughs> For Science Insider or Policy blog, we've got a story about how to encourage more scientific risk-taking. Also, a story about what impact Canada's new prime minister might have on Canadian science. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. During the Devonian period, 420 to 359 million years ago, our vertebrate ancestors, some of them giants, ruled the sea. But they hadn't yet climbed onto land. Then came a mass extinction called the Hangenberg event, which had major consequences for all vertebrate lineages. Lauren Salon discusses the Hangenberg event's effect on vertebrate body size and life history traits, and what we can learn from it in this current era of human-driven extinctions. I'm Suzanne Bard. Paint me a picture of vertebrate life on our planet during the Devonian period. What were the vertebrates like, and what life history traits dominated in this world? So in the Devonian, all vertebrates were aquatic. This was before vertebrates had first conquered the land. And the fishes that we might find in the sea were not like what we would expect today. They included the lowfin fishes, which are actually our closest relatives, things like lungfish and coelacanths, and the placoderms, a now completely extinct group of armored fishes that could be the size of school buses. In terms of life history, they tended to invest a lot in their young. 
So they developed things like pregnancy and live birth, evolving these independently of mammals so that they could protect their young until they achieved the sizes necessary to avoid being eaten by other members of the same ecosystem. Over time, this led to the Devonian vertebrates becoming larger and larger. Was that one of the main reasons behind the diversity of vertebrates back then? Yes, the increase in size is a side effect of the factors that drove the diversity of vertebrates during the Devonian. Because vertebrates were developing more complex ecosystems and more interactions with each other, they were driving the evolution of larger forms and new forms, creating the first modern-style vertebrate ecosystems where you had everything from benthic bottom dweller to top apex predator. Interesting. So it sounds like this all came to kind of a crashing halt around 359 million years ago when there was a mass extinction. Do scientists know what caused this? The primary cause of the Hangenberg event appears to be ice. Specifically, during the Devonian, there was no polar ice cap whatsoever. There were generally warm seas. However, 359 million years ago, there was a sudden glacial spike in which an ice cap formed not only over the pole, but also in the tropics at sea level over what is now Maryland and Pennsylvania. This resulted in dramatic sea level fall, which destroyed near shore habitats as well as open oceans, basically taking out the ecosystem from under the vertebrates' feet or fins. Wow, that sounds pretty major. So what was the impact of this event on vertebrate populations and species, and how does it stack up to other mass extinctions in Earth's history? So the data suggests that this was a very high-magnitude mass extinction in terms of vertebrates. It wiped out over 96% of species and over half of major classes of vertebrates at that time. The placoderms, for example, had once been diverse from freshwater to marine settings, and they are completely lost. At most, only one or two surviving lineages from each group make it through. This actually means that the Hangenberg event is much worse than other mass extinctions in terms of vertebrate victims. Most mass extinctions spare smaller vertebrates, preferentially killing off large ones, or they preferentially kill off land animals like dinosaurs while sparing fishes. This extinction seems to have affected every group, no matter its ecology or size or habitat. Interesting. So why look at vertebrate body size before and after this mass extinction? So body size has been examined in the fossil record in a lot of different ways. And that's because since body size correlates with major aspects of life history and affects major parts of ecology, scientists have looked at whether there are long-term trends in this trait over time, and especially over mass extinction. However, very few studies have looked at total body sizes across an entire major group before and after mass extinction to determine whether body sizes become larger in good times, as has been hypothesized, or whether extinction preferentially spares small animals, leading to a temporary loss of body size, known as the Lilliput effect. Our study looked at body sizes in the total group of vertebrates across this mass extinction in order to see not only whether hypothesized trends actually occurred, but what might be driving them. Because mass extinction resets the whole fauna, brings everything back to zero, it's like having two different experiments in what drives body size evolution, one before the extinction and one after. So it's like a natural experiment. So in your study, who are the winners in this post-extinction world in terms of body size? 
And was there a shift in the life history traits that were favored afterwards? So the short-term winners after the mass extinction event were things that were either much smaller than their ancestors before the extinction or things that were much larger. And this is because they have two sets of life histories that can survive in disrupted ecosystems. The things that are very small tend to be fast breeding, they have larger population sizes, and they can subsist on fewer resources. And so they're better able to exploit depressed ecosystems, but also generate more diversity and basically take over the world. Usually the factors in terms of body size gain or loss tend to be given as environmental causes or climate causes, like changes in oxygen and temperature. However, we found no association between these and the changes in body size we see over the event. And so that means that changes in ecology, being in a disrupted global ecosystem, are what actually drove this global shrinkage in body sizes. Now, in this post-extinction world, were there some large-bodied holdouts, and what was their ultimate fate? Yes, so after the Hangenberg extinction, there were large-bodied holdouts. These are often called dead clades walking, in that they do survive the extinction because they live longer, they're more likely to have larger range sizes, they make it out of disrupted ecosystems into better conditions. But because they're so slow to grow and their population sizes tend to be smaller, they don't diversify. And so eventually they die out either in the face of competition from smaller, faster breeding fishes or because of random events that normally happen in ecosystems but which they cannot adapt to. Are there lessons to be learned from this ancient extinction as we humans are driving a new wave of extinction right now on the planet? So traditionally, after mass extinction, our results show that you would expect to see an initial bimodal distribution of body sizes, where you have very large apex predators and very small fishes and nothing in between. So the ecosystems would be flattened. Because we're preferentially killing off large predators like sharks, we won't expect to see that. However, the lessons for our modern extinction are that once we remove large animals, they won't come back. They may not come back for 40 million years or so. The small fishes we leave behind will give rise to new small fishes who will do all the same jobs, perhaps, as the animals that have been lost, but at very small sizes. For you as a scientist, what were the biggest surprises in doing this study? So the biggest surprise for me was how persistent body size loss was after the mass extinction. So there had been a highly disputed hypothesis that after mass extinction you get temporary reduction of body size, mostly because the larger animals have been killed off by the extinction itself. The study shows that you can have active trends towards smaller body sizes for tens of millions of years following extinction, and that it's these post-extinction trends that have a bigger effect on biodiversity than even the extinction itself, that you can survive the mass extinction, but if you don't respond appropriately to circumstances afterwards, you can still die out. You cannot predict the eventual winners of mass extinction or future biodiversity, even based on the first number of survivors, that you really need to watch the entire process play out over the tens of millions of years afterwards. Extinction is not a one-time event, but a long-term interval, and it's only the species that make it completely through in their traits that help found subsequent biodiversity. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Lauren. Thank you for inviting me on the program.
Lauren Salon writes about the effects of mass extinction on vertebrate body size, this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.